The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's take our Bibles, if you would, and open them to Isaiah chapter 43. And I'd like you to find that scripture rather quickly because I want to read from here before we actually get into the sermon tonight. It was very appropriate that the choir sang that little medley of songs that uh, mentioned the grace of God because that is what I want to talk to you about tonight. And uh, I would like you to look at this passage in Isaiah chapter 43, and I'll begin reading here in verse number 22. Isaiah 43, verse number 22. But thou hast not called upon me, O Jacob, but thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. Thou hast not brought me the small cattle of thy burnt offerings, neither hast thou honored me with thy sacrifices. I have not caused thee to serve with an offering, nor wearied thee with incense. Thou hast bought me no sweet cane with money, neither hast thou filled me with the fat of thy sacrifices. But thou hast made me to serve with thy sins, thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins." Now, it is our blessed privilege to come to the Lord's table tonight. Uh, This is our first observance of 2014. And uh, we come tonight to honor the command that God has given us uh, to remember this great sacrifice that he's made for our sins. Uh, We're now 2,000 years into the history of the church. And uh, we just began our study on church history uh, last month, at the end of last month, and we will resume that next week. And I can assure you that with all confidence that there have been Christians, Baptist people throughout these many centuries since Christ began his church that have faithfully observed the Lord's Supper. Uh, I know that some Baptists today have gone to open communion, which uh, I prefer to call free-for-all communion. Uh, they've gone to that, and, and there are still some churches that uh, practice some form of restricted communion, but I can also assure you that there are good Baptist churches throughout our country that still observe the supper as we think that it needs to be done, as the Bible teaches, and that is that we do it among the membership of the local church. Now, tonight I want to turn your attention to the most critical import of the cross, and that is the favor of God or the grace of God that we receive because of what Jesus did on the cross. Now, God's gift of Christ is really a gift of grace because it is the greatest gift that was ever given. Uh, God has given us his own son to die for our sins, and there is no grace that could be greater than that. But I want to begin with uh, the most necessary benefit that we receive from the death of Christ, and that is the forgiveness that we have of our sins. That we can rejoice because we have God's gift of the forgiveness of our sins. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to sing our communion hymn, and uh, there's a line in that hymn that says, Behold the Lamb who bears our sins away, slain for us. And we remember the promise made that all who come in faith Find forgiveness at the cross. 
And I think that all of us are happy to remember the grace that God gives us in the forgiveness that we find at the cross. But we not only consider that God has forgiven us, but I think it's important for us to remember what the magnitude of the sins are that God has forgiven us. Now, here in Isaiah chapter 43, we we have some insight into the depth of sin for which we can find forgiveness. That when when a Christian or when a person comes to the Lord repenting of his sins and desiring to be restored to the favor of God, he will always find that the forgiveness of God is ready there to be received. Now, I I know that there are a lot of Christians that whenever you pick up the Old Testament, they're really not too happy to hear you reading Scripture from the Old Testament. Uh, Many Christians don't like to read from the Old Testament, and and many Christians don't like to read from the Bible at all, and that's why you don't find too many actually do reading the Bible. But I understand the problems that people have when they pick up the Old Testament. There there are some difficulties in reading it and understanding it. Uh, Sometimes you can get bogged down in those genealogies of First Chronicles, or you may be reading in the book of Leviticus and you get into all those meticulous little things that are written about the, the sacrifices that Israel made. For some people, it may be the book of Job. And you look at Job and, and you just wonder, how could such good advice so be, so be so miserably misapplied? Uh, my daughter uh, called me a few months ago and, and um, in the Bible program that we have, reading program that we have, uh, uh, Job is, of course, one of those books that you read quite often throughout the year. And she was telling me, so I just don't understand Job. Can you, can you give me some kind of help with it? And she said, do you have any books that I could read? So I did happen to have one in my office that was a commentary on Job, and so I sent that to her. But that's a very common problem for people. You get into the book of Job, and you don't understand that. And then there are some, you get to the book of Song of Solomon, And that just seems to be totally confusing. You have no idea what's going on in that book. And so people just really get bogged down in the Old Testament. But I don't think that there's any, any greater problem than when it comes to actually reading the prophets. And it may not be because they're so hard to understand, but it's because you have to go through this constant repetition. There's repetition and repetition, and it seems like the minor prophets, the major prophets, are all saying the same thing, that they are pronouncing doom on somebody. There's always the idea that Israel has done something wrong, and they did. Now, the prophets had to go through years and years of rebellion and rebellion and more rebellion. Both major and minor prophets address that, and there's good reason for it, why the message has to be so negative, and that's because Israel was always sinning against God. They were extremely wicked. Now, even though God had been so good to them and had done so much for them, they constantly turn their backs on him. And it's not the prophet's fault that the message had to be so negative. It was because of Israel's sin. And I can tell you that the best way to get rid of negative messages is to stop sinning. Just stop sinning, and then we don't have to spend so much time dealing with the failures of God's saints. We can move on to more positive themes. We just need to know that we've got to give up those sins and ask God for forgiveness. But with us, as it was with them, there is always this undertone that we find in the Scriptures that God says, don't do this. Don't do that sin. Don't continue in sin. Return to me, and I promise that I will forgive you. And Ezekiel, God said, I don't want you to die. 
I don't take any pleasure in your punishment. Why will you die? And that's the, that, that's the, the promise that we find in this passage, that there is this amazing grace of God who is always willing to forgive the multitude of our transgressions. The magnitude of the sins that we have committed against God is truly great. And as we read it here in, in the prophets, that, that magnitude of those sins was exceedingly wicked. And every one of the sins that we commit, whether it's them or whether it's us, took the infinite suffering of Christ on the cross to pay for the penalty of the justice of God that was demanded. Now, in that Ezekiel passage that I made reference to just a moment ago, God says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And yet we know that the Bible teaches that all of us have sinned and that according to the holiness and justice of God, that sin must be punished. God is never going to give us mercy at the expense of his justice. But yet, he still says he desires that the wicked should not perish, even so it was sin that put his son through so much grievous torture. Now, there's only one way that you can reconcile these these two truths about God, that God will punish sin, but that God will forgive the worst of sins. There's only one way that you can reconcile that, and it must be that it is the nature of God to forgive. Now, God did not create the human race as a tyrant, knowing that we would sin and we were deserving of punishment, but rather God created all of us with a plan to redeem us, to bring glory to himself, and he would provide that, a joy in that, by giving us forgiveness. Well, forgiveness has always been in God's plan because he's immutable. God doesn't change from one week to the next. He doesn't change from one century to the next. And so we know that when he began uh, the world, when he created us, that he created us with a plan to forgive us. Now, he did know that we would sin, and he also knew that sin would be extremely costly to him. That in order to take care of our sins, it would take the death of his own son to reconcile us to him. Now, we often wonder why God would create us with with, uh, this ability to fall, because the fall would lead many to to, to spend eternity in hell. And we wonder, why why doesn't God just save everybody? And, And those are good questions, but I think a greater mystery would be, why would God create us knowing that when we fell, the sin would be so costly to him? Now, we always make our plight, our problem, the center of all this dismay. Have you ever stopped for a minute to think about why God would even do this? Why God would allow sin? Why, Why God would create us knowing what we would do and knowing what that sin would cost him? Now, that that's a, a question that we're never going to be be able to answer in this life. Maybe when we meet God face to face, he'll explain that to us. Right now, any answer that God would give is not in our ability to understand it. But we have to look at this and see that, that God, it is his nature to forgive sin. And that accounts for the reason why that Israel could do such horrible things against him, that they could be so far away from him, and yet God will still say, if you come to me, I will forgive you. Now, now notice how that it's expressed in this text. Verse number 22 says that they had not called on him. Now, here we're talking about God's own people. They had not called on him. 
They, they neglected communication with God. Now, several times in the prophets and also when you read the kings, you'll find that Israel did not turn to God, but rather when they had problems, they turned to their enemies and they made alliances with them. They were always seeking out someone else to help them rather than going to God and asking him for his help. And so they would turn to Egypt. And they would turn to Syria. Sometimes they turned to the Assyrians or Edom or whomever. And those people were the enemies of God. And what they eventually did, all of them ended up turning on Israel. And then verse number 23 says that they had not brought God the offerings that he required. And that's very important because those offerings represented the theological system of atonement. And so by rejecting the offerings, they had actually rejected the salvation that God would give them. Now, that doesn't mean that they were saved by those offerings. They weren't saved by sacrifices that they made. But those things were symbols of what they were to believe. And instead of bringing those things, instead of bringing sacrifices, righteous sacrifices that God required, what Israel brought was their sins. Now, the last part of verse number 24 says, But thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. Thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. So here is more and more sin from rebellious hearts instead of more and more sacrifices from redeemed hearts. And yet, what does God say? He says, I will blot out your transgressions and I will not remember your sins. And doesn't that show his nature of forgiveness? How could God tolerate so much wickedness and still say, I will forgive? And the answer to that question is, is because his nature is forgiveness. Now, what I think that we fail to understand is that we have also taxed God beyond the limit. Now, we read these stories in the Old Testament and we see what uh, Israel did and we think, oh, what terrible crimes that they have committed, how far they are away from God. And we don't really examine our own selves to see that we are guilty of the same kinds of things that Israel was guilty of. And it gets worse every day. I mean, American Christians especially, as we blatantly turn our backs on God, and God has done so much for us. I mean, here in America, we're guilty of egregious violations of thankfulness. We've been given so much that we wonder, how do we resist God after he's given us so many blessings? And yet we do. We look around the church tonight. We can't even fill up the church tonight when Christians... Members of the church should be here to commemorate the death of the cross. We can't fill up the church because Christians are too insensitive to be thankful. But in spite of that, God keeps on forgiving. And he forgives because it's his nature. God just will not change. Even though we're as fickle as we can be, God is not going to change. His nature of forgiveness does not change. And then there's another point that I think should go hand in hand with that. And, and let, let, let's suppose for a minute, minute that, that God forgives or the way that he forgives is for us to make up for what we have done wrong. Now, sadly, that, that is the teaching of all false views of Christianity. And it's capped off and accentuated by, the, by Roman Catholicism's absolution of sin by their priest. Now, they'll tell you to go to the priest and confess, and then he'll give you the steps of penance, that he'll tell you what you must do in order to have God's forgiveness. Well, as we look at this passage and 
other places in the Old Testament, would that have worked for Israel? Could they ever done enough to, to make up for the years of rebellion? Well, there's no way that they could have. In fact, there's only one way that they could have been forgiven, and that is by the method that we find in verse number 25, where God says, I will forgive sin for my sake. And so it's not what they did, not what they could do for God, but it's what God did for them. You see, forgiveness of sin can only come by the grace of God. It can't come any other way. And so there can't be any mixing of penance with grace. Grace is no more grace if we put any work with it. And so as Israel could not be forgiven by increasing the numbers of their sacrifices, so we are never going to be forgiven for any of the merits of anything that we do for God. And so a system that says that God will forgive you if you do this is a system that doesn't understand sin and neither does it understand God. We are forgiven for God's sake, not for ours. Now, it's interesting the way that Paul states that very same truth in the book of Ephesians. You know, we're always commenting on the many ways that the Bible declares that Jesus is God. As we've been going through Matthew, I mean, I'm careful many times to point out to you, well, here is a scripture where Jesus shows that he's God. He may do that indirectly, but he does it so many different times. Sometimes he just says it, but most of the time he shows us in indirect ways that he is God. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul does in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Now, if God forgives for his sake, and he forgives for Christ's sake, then what does that make Christ? It makes him God. Now, that's a wonderful truth. Now, we are hopeless if God forgives for our sake but we're filled with hope if he forgives us for Christ's sake. Now, secondly, I want you to note the grace of God's faithfulness. Now, God leaves no room to mistake that he's the one that is faithful. We fail him miserably, but he never forgets the promise to forgive when we come to him with a repentant heart. And so he's very emphatic about this. And you'll notice the emphasis that he places on that he's the one who's faithful in verse number 25 because there three times he puts the onus upon himself. He says, I, even I, blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake. So what God wants us to see here is that he's obligated himself, that he's given us his word, and that word is his solemn oath that he will forgive, that he's always faithful to us and he's always going to perform that promise. The Apostle Paul said that he knew that God would perform his promise. He said, whatever I've committed to him, God will keep against that day. The heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11 committed themselves to God, and they believed that God was always faithful. You know, we always call that 11th chapter of Hebrews, the, about, it's about the heroes of the faith. But do you understand this, that God is really the one who's the hero of that passage? And that's because it's God who is the one who must perform. He's the one that's always faithful. And that's why people can be faithful to him. So faith is always built upon him. And and that's illustrated greatly in the story of Abraham and Isaac. In Hebrews 11, verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises, offered up his only begotten son, 
of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. And so Abraham was ready to plunge the knife into Isaac, and he would do that because he believed that God is faithful. So God's the one who's the hero of the faith. He's the one that must perform, and that's the way that God always is. He is always faithful to us. But do you want to know something that's more important? If God makes us a promise, we might think that God would break that promise because, after all, who are we? I mean, after we have promised all of our affection to God, in just about five minutes, we'll break that promise. Now, you look at Peter. Peter um, said that he would go with Jesus to the death. He said that he would never forsake him. And what was it? Just a few minutes later, three times, Peter denied the Lord. And that's the way it is with all of our lives. We break the promises that we make to God. We tell him that we're going to be faithful, but we aren't. We're always breaking promises. So we ought not to think that it would be a very good deal, a big deal, if, if God should break a promise to us. I mean, keeping a promise shows respect to the one that you've made the promise to. And if we break our promises, we don't show very much respect for God. And so we would think, why would God show any respect to us? And that would be a very big problem for us if it wasn't for this one other thing, this one all-important factor, and that is the greatest reason that God will never break a promise to us is because of the promise that he made to Christ. He's faithful to us because of the promise that he made to Christ. Now, in the eternal covenant between the Father and the Son, the Father promised that he would bring home all that were given to Christ. He promised that there is not one of them that would be lost. The Father says, if you will die for them, then I will forgive them. And that alone is enough to tell you that, that Jesus Christ gave his life especially for his people because all that Christ died for are granted forgiveness. And God is willing to forgive them because he's always faithful to his son. And we could never imagine how God would not be faithful to his son because Jesus has given him every incentive, all the motive that he'd ever need to be faithful to that promise. And that is because he always did the Father's will. Now, we never, we, we don't really give him any incentive. We don't give him any motive to be faithful to us because we fail him so much. But do you understand why your salvation could never be lost? You just try out the faithfulness of God. He made a promise to you, and that's monumentally important, but far more important than that, greater still is the guarantee of his faithfulness because of the promise that he made to Christ. Christ's high priestly prayer in John 17 is proof positive of this eternal covenant that exists between the Father and the Son. Now, sadly, there are many Christians that don't even believe that that covenant exists, or if they do, they say that, well, that covenant is based upon foreseen faith or some other such foolish thing. But we know this, that the forgiveness of God is for God's sake, it's for Christ's sake, and there is no other reason. And salvation is not a synergistic thing between man and God, but it is, as Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord. So we have the grace of God in forgiveness and the grace of God in his faithfulness. And finally, I'll just give you one more, and it doesn't exhaust the subject, but that is the grace of God's forgetfulness. And how sweet that promise is. 
how sweet this grace is. In verse 25, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. God is forgetful. Now let's take a moment to understand that that statement just a little bit better. Many of you are aware of this terrible disease that afflicts my mother. Uh, she was diagnosed a few years ago with Alzheimer's and, and that disease has steadily progressed until now she's in a nursing home. And Alzheimer's is really a terrible disease of the mind. It's a very frightening disease so that you know, it, it can even cause a person to, to forget in seconds what they've just heard, what they've just learned, who they've talked to. And at first that sounds a little bit comical. And if you ever met someone with Alzheimer's at first, you might think, well, that's just a little bit funny, isn't it? Somebody forgets so quickly. But Alzheimer's is such, is such a terrible disease because people that have it are afflicted with a perpetual insecurity. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like to always live in a strange place? And to always live among people who are strangers to you? That'd be a terrible existence to live. That's forgetfulness. But we're not talking about that kind of forgetfulness when we talk about God. His forgetfulness is in the sense that the sins that you commit can never be resurrected for punishment. That once you have placed your faith in Christ, all of your sins are covered under the blood of Christ and God forgives us because of what Christ has done on the cross. It is the blood of the, of the cross that becomes the basis for the perpetual forgiveness of our sins. So once you become a believer, once you are in Christ, God no longer sees you. All he sees is Christ. As I spoke to you this morning about that robe of righteousness that God gives, that's all that he sees in his people. He sees the garments of salvation that we have been clothed with. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so sin in, the regard, in regard to punishment can never be an issue for a Christian. The Apostle John stated it this way in 1 John 3, 9. He said that the seed remains in us. Now, you can look up that verse a little bit later, and you can study that out, and you can debate what the seed there is. Is that the Word of God? Is that what it means? Or is it the Holy Spirit? Is that the seed? Or is it the new life that's imparted by Christ? And you can pick any of those answers that you want, because all of them are going to amount to the same thing. It means that God no longer sees sin in the believer when his sins have all been taken care of by accepting the sacrifice of Christ, that that is the satisfaction to God's justice, that the penalty for sin has been paid in him. And so the cross becomes a permanent transaction that's good for the sins of the believer for all time. Now, God forgives sin, which means that he no longer reckons it to us. He forgets about it so that Paul said, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And that's the way that God was with Israel. I mean, there was so much that God could remember. God could have said, why, why should I forgive you? I can't forgive you. Look at the multitudes of things that you've done against me. And yet it's in the very same Old Testament that we read in the Psalms, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. And that principle was graphically illustrated in the sacrifices and the, and the uh, uh, different things that they did in the tabernacle time. Do you remember the, what's called a scapegoat? When Israel would take two goats and they would sacrifice, the, the high priest would sacrifice 
or rather he would place his hands upon uh, one of these goats and he would confess the sins of Israel over that goat and they would take it out into the wilderness, into a land that was uninhabited and they would let that goat go never to be seen again. The other goat they would take and they would kill that goat as a sacrifice. But the principle that's shown there is that God removes our sin from us, that he never remembers our sin anymore. Now, the only time I think that God remembers our sin is simply to tell us not to forget what he's done for us. And do you remember when we were studying worship that we discovered that that is one of the best ways that we can worship God, and that is to remember what God has done for us? The very best praise that we can give is when we praise him for what he's already done for us. I mean, just as Moses sang his song of deliverance, so the child of God sings a song of deliverance that we have been delivered from those sins that should have imposed upon us the worst penalty that anyone could ever imagine. Now, that's a psalm, a song that we need to remember. Now, now here's something interesting about what happens when you say, God, I remember what I did to you. C.H. Spurgeon relates it this way. He says, the Christian will have many accusers. The devil will come and say, that man is a great sinner. I don't remember it, says God. That man rebelled against thee, says the accuser. I do not remember it, says God, for I have said I will not remember his sins. The believer's own conscience says, ah, but Lord, it is true, I did sin against thee and most grievously. I do not remember it, says God. I said, I will not remember your sins. And so what does God do? He wipes it all away. He clears the slate. He cleans the record. He wipes it all clean so that it shows nothing but the blood of Christ. Colossians says, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Nailed to the cross. Sins are nailed to the grace of the cross. And we remember the promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross. And so we remember the promise, and God forgets the problem. The cross is the place of our remembrance, and at the same time, it is the place of God's forgetfulness. And this is why we come to the supper and why Jesus says to us, he says, this do in remembrance of me. We remember what he's done for us. Now, do you find good reason to celebrate the death of Christ? Now, as I said this morning, uh, we are never told to mourn the death of Christ. Now, if you want to mourn, mourn because of the sins that you committed that put him there. Or you might want to mourn for people who will never receive the forgiveness of God because they refuse to come the way of the cross. That's when you should mourn. And then have you ever thought how foolish it is for anyone to think that, well, the way that I can get to heaven or the thing that God honors is sincerity? I mean, I may not do everything that God wants me to do, and I might believe the wrong thing, but I am very sincere about what I believe. Or have you ever thought what it would be like if God should honor best efforts for people to get into heaven, or that God would honor anything without Jesus Christ? 
Anything that doesn't consider him, why would God ever do that? That would be the height of the greatest dishonor that he could do for his son to require his blood for the sacrifice of sins and to cover sins and then for God to let somebody through who says, well, what I do, the good things that I do, that's good enough in order to get me to heaven. That spits on the cross of Christ. Israel could never make up for their sins. And neither can you or I make up for our sins. We honor God when we come to the cross and we bow and receive there the forgiveness of our sins. Now we're taught a very good lesson here in Isaiah. I think it becomes a communion text for us and that's because of God's favor, because of his grace that has been bestowed both in Old and New Testaments because of the cross. And so there we find the grace of God's forgiveness and the grace of God's faithfulness and the grace of God's forgetfulness. And we could name so many other things. I mean, we could just sum it all up by saying all sufficient grace is found at the cross. And that's why we come and honor the cross tonight and the death of Jesus Christ on the cross as we observe this supper that commemorates that death. Oh, it's a wonderful time, a wonderful privilege that we have to come to the Lord's table. And we thank him that he was willing to give his life for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, so much for this time that you've given us to come together and look into your word and to consider what happened at the cross, to consider that the grace of God was poured out in that blood of Jesus Christ that covers all of our sin. And because of that, Lord, we can come to you at any time. We can pray to you. We know that our sins are covered, that you never forget what we've done. And when we have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, we come into your presence pure and holy and ready to be received by you. And we just thank you, Lord, because only the cross could do that for us. Bless us, Lord, as we observe this supper tonight, and we'll just give you the praise for it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.